This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. There's a lot going on, as there is every day, when it comes to COVID-19 and the vaccine. Watching the impact, though, that COVID is having on public health specifically, Dr. Jessica Holzer, Assistant Professor in Health Sciences and Director of Public Health at the University of New Haven, with us on the phone from New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Holzer, nice to have you here. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. A lot going on, as there is always in our world, but uh, in particular when it comes to COVID. And I think we continue to assess minute by minute, two steps forward, one step back. Where are we going? How do you see it? Yeah, so I think um, even though it might feel like two steps forward, one step back, I think it's really important to keep focused on the fact that we are in a much different place today than we were a year ago when we were facing some of these other return to school questions and return to work questions. We do have a vaccine available for people 12 and older. Um, and that really sets a tone for what's possible. Um, because we have the vaccine and because we have enough supply now, anyone who can get vaccinated, that creates a really important avenue for an additional layer of protection. Uh, and so I think that really has changed where we are, what dance we're dancing now. Um, it's important to recognize that the Delta variant is a different variant than the Alpha variant in terms of how the vaccines are effective. But even though there seems to be some less effectiveness for vaccines, they're still very effective relative to not being vaccinated. And I think that's an important point for us. But getting more vaccines out there, safe to say, is a key uh, activity that needs to be done to make sure that this virus yeah. doesn't essentially mutate to a variant that doesn't react or isn't uh, taken care of by the current uh, plate of vaccines. Exactly. So the longer that we have unvaccinated populations, and this includes kids, which is why Mm. it's still a very high priority for the vaccine distributors and vaccine manufacturers to take into account the, the kids under the age of 12. But we see that particularly for that 12 to 35 population, we see that's a population that still has substantially lower vaccination rates than populations older than 35 and especially the 66 and above population. And it's important to recognize that they are going to be the students in schools in a lot of cases, um, both uh, in middle school, high school, and in college that are going to be presented with opportunities to in that communal setting, continue to infect one another and to serve as petri dishes for (laughs) new variants. Uh, And so this Delta variant has come about in part because of selection pressure, which is just, um, you know, which which variant can survive in the environment the most and a variant that's going to be able to avoid vaccination and be able to um, repopulate in people who are unvaccinated. That's going to be the variant that's going to become dominant, as we've seen with Delta. So Avoiding future variants, Lambda and others, is going to essentially depend on us getting as many people vaccinated as possible, getting that vaccine rollout globally, and really trying to reduce the available population who is at risk for developing COVID and therefore would be at risk for COVID replicating into new variants and, and new variants coming to the fore. What do you say to parents who come up to you and say, my kids are going back to school, I'm a little nervous, they're too young to get the vaccine, uh, how should we proceed? 
Yeah, so I am a parent of a child too young to get the vaccine mm-hmm. who uh, is herself dealing with those questions. So they are very pertinent. And uh, it's essential to those parents to recognize that the more adults around those children who are vaccinated, the safer those children will be. So my child is unable to get vaccinated. She just turned four. And the way that I'm protecting her is that every single adult she interacts with is vaccinated. I'm making sure they're vaccinated. I'm making sure that they are still practicing safe practices. So even if they're vaccinated, I'm asking questions with respect to where have they been traveling? What have their activities been? Are they possibly someone who has been exposed to someone who had the Delta variant? Because we are seeing that there are some breakthrough infections for vaccinated individuals. So those parents, you know, advocate as much as possible for masking. Um, Mm -hmm. Masking your own child is really important, but it's very, very essential that if other children are unmasked, like trying to get that in place. I know this is a source of some real political uh, friction. And so nevertheless, parents have a lot of power to demand masking among their schools and those sorts of places. Um, and keeping those adults vaccinated is really essential. What are you seeing in communities around the country, um, some of those less fortunate communities uh, where people are just struggling maybe to you know, keep a, a roof over the heads of their family and get food on the table? Um, how are you seeing them in terms of the crisis? I think about New Haven, certainly one of those communities. Yeah, sure. Yeah, New Haven has some substantial um, economic variation and, mm-hmm. and populations that have historically been left out um, of economic mobility and a lot of other things. And that's been a key issue, especially for vaccination. Um, It's been both an information and an access question. Uh, What we've seen in New Haven is that we have had door-to-door vaccination campaigns, and I've actually been involved in some of those. Right. Uh, And those have been really effective at trying to address some of the homebound issues, some of the education issues, and some of the access issues that have presented themselves. Um, I think okay. now it really depends on leaders in communities right. and um, at the state level to, to keep pressing that out so right. that individuals aren't responsible themselves. That focus on community is so important throughout this. We've heard that from so many. Jessica, thank you so much. Jessica Holzer, she's Assistant Professor, Program Director of Public Health at University of New Haven. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. One of the discussions that I think surprised some, perhaps even many, over the past year or so, as we often talked about uh, diversity and inclusion, was the lack of just that in Silicon Valley, the epicenter of U.S. innovation. So feeling that deficiency big time are Asian Americans. And that's the subject of a Bloomberg Business Week story that you can find online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get more on it from Priya Anand. She is Bloomberg Venture Capital reporter. She joins us right now on the phone in San Francisco and on the remote access in Massachusetts, Bloomberg Business Week editor, Jill Weber. Priya, let me bring you in. You did the reporting uh, along with our Ellen Hewitt. Tell us what you set out to to find out or, or what was it that triggered the question that you knew that there was, okay, I've got to ask and find out more about this story. That's right. So we've known for a while that Silicon Valley is not great with diversity. And you would assume these companies, you know, um, companies crop up every day here. These, a lot of these companies are, are not that many decades old. You would assume that they weren't saddled with some of the historical issues that other institutions that have been around for maybe hundreds of years might be saddled with. But 
one one key thing that we realized was, you know, in the demographic reports that these companies put out, Alphabet, Google's parent company, Facebook, et cetera, one bright spot always appears to be that Asians account for almost as much of the company as white folks and sometimes more of the population at a company in the U.S., at least. Facebook, for example, Asian people outnumber their white peers um, ever so slightly in the U.S. And so we looked at that a little deeper and we realized, you know, there is a gap as you move up the ranks at tech companies and the data shows this. Um, there are far fewer Asian folks in leadership compared to their overall representation at the company. Um, so we noticed that gap and we thought, you know, what is behind that gap? Let's start asking the questions and talking to people. Yeah. And, you know, Joel, I think it is a surprise. You know, we do often cover how tech companies or we talk with tech company executives, they love to say we've got a lot of diversity and inclusion. And yes, sometimes that is the case, but it's not such a clear picture. Picture, It's a lot more complicated. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that is, was really the thrust of the story. And, and what Priya did, um, I think, re- remarkably well is like there's the data side of the story, but then there's the, the human one. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to actually like take a moment. Like these are people who haven't often spoken on the record about sort of the the environment that the work environment that they're in and and there were several themes that um uh stuck out i think in the reporting and and Priya, what, why don't you just talk to us about what some of those were and and what people felt yeah and like Joel said so one of the things that is most frustrating for asians in the tech industry is that the racism against them is barely acknowledged there's this idea I spoke with someone yesterday who said, thank you for writing this story because there's been this idea that we shouldn't talk about this because at least we're well represented at these companies. But there are a a lot of challenges that come along the way as you're progressing at a tech company. We spoke with folks who are fairly young, in their 20s, as an intern, um, a woman who moved to San Francisco for an internship was told, you know, um, white men here will love to date you. And so for women in the tech industry, there's this double whammy, right, of receiving the gendered feedback and also this sort of feedback that, that fetishizes Asian women. The same woman has been told by a manager or by a colleague that, um, you know, you only have succeeded here because someone in leadership has an Asian fetish. And this is someone in their 20s. And this person, you know, has also been told that they lack executive presence, which for someone in their 20s, you know, is this vague kind of coded feedback on what does that even mean? You've never managed anyone in the first place. Um, and, and when you combine all those things together, it's quite a discouraging outlook. And then when folks reach middle management stage, this vague feedback continues, right, related to executive presence. And also people are often told, you know, you don't fit the profile, of what we're looking for in this role. And they look at their credentials. They look at um, their successes that they've had in their career. They look at their peers. And sometimes the only difference is they're an Asian American compared to a lot of their white peers. Right. And they're left wondering whether this vague feedback had something to do with their performance or their credentials, or is it about their identity? So, you know, one of the um, other elements that I thought was so significant about the story was that we're not just talking about names that you know and the characters that you talk to i mean it's all it's it's more it feels more like rank and file that you guys were able to 
that, that you, you and uh, Ellen were able to speak with. But there is one person that I think um, is more identifiable than others, which is Ellen Powell. And you know that she became famous for the case that she lost in 2015. But it also, um, you know, it speaks to sort of what she was able to accomplish and the legacy, her legacy, a little bit. So, what did you learn from talking with Ellen Powell? Yeah, well, one thing I wanted to chat with Ellen Powell about in particular was when she was interim CEO of Reddit. Firstly, why was it interim? Right? Um, did did the board coming in decide that she wouldn't be staying on? forever and, and why it was that. And she says she looks back and, and wonders the same thing, why she had that tacked onto her title and she let it go at the time. Um, but one of the things that struck me most is looking back on her career, while she was running Reddit, there were all these racist memes that users would post calling her Chairman Mao or Chairman Pao after, you know, Mao style memes. Um, and, and that just seemed really striking, right? To rebel against the changes she was making with not just any kind of meme, but these, like, frankly, very racist memes um, calling her Chairman Pow. So that that was something that I think if that happened now, um, perhaps we'd look at even more than it was covered in the past. Um, and, yeah. and Ellen Powell is such an example for, for folks, right, of someone who rose and who tried to um, push back against the lack of diversity in the tech industry by suing Kleiner Perkins for gender discrimination. And, right. and she also feels, looking back, that a lot of what she experienced was race-related as well. But mm-hmm. as a legal strategy at the time, her lawyers advised her to just go with suing for gender. There's so much, that more easily. so much in this story, including how there are different experiences for different Asian Americans. So uh, I highly recommend that everyone check it out. I'll put it out on Twitter. Uh, Priya, thank you so much for bringing it to us. Priya Anand, she's venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from San Francisco, written with our own Ellen Hewitt. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. Speaking of updates, we're going to get one from the Walt Disney Company. They report uh, their latest quarterly earnings after the close tomorrow. Ahead of that, a story that is among our most read on the Bloomberg today. It's about the company's Star Wars experience, a new galactic-themed hotel with what some might say is an astronomic price tag. Here to fill us in and what it may be portends, if you will, when it comes to experiences, especially among the wealthy, is Connor Sen. He is Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. He joins us on the phone from Atlanta. Connor, uh, good to have you here. I love this story. Caught my attention this morning when I was reading in. So first of all, (laughs) tell us what Disney is up to. Well, I think people look at the price tag and they they think about what a theme park costs. Maybe Disney World is 125 bucks a day, hotels a few hundred dollars. And then they see a two-day experience for two adults at $5,000, and they're thinking, what's going on here? But I think they've, they've sort of seen that there's a, an appetite for this higher-end luxury consumption that isn't being met by the marketplace, and they intend to tap into it. Right, because it sounds a little like, wait, what? It's going to be a small audience. But remember when we thought there was only going to be a small audience maybe for these expensive Apple iPhones, and yet <laughs> they've created a lot of wealth for that company, and a lot of people have snapped them up. What do you think is kind of the more significant sign uh, or what we should read into kind of what Star, Star Wars is up to? Not Star Wars, what Disney is up to. Well, I think we know that household net worth, especially at the top, has increased significantly over the past 10 or 15 years, and particularly over the past 12 to 18 months. Home prices are up a lot. Stock portfolios are up a lot. If you work from home, you've probably done just fine over the past year. And so coming out of this pandemic and say next year after we get through all these variants, 
there's going to be a lot of untapped appetite for sort of luxury consumption. And there really aren't a lot of great ways to do that, at least nothing that's sort of newish. And so Disney says, here's something new, something exclusive, and they think it's going to be a hit. Do you really believe that there's not a lot of ways for those who are really wealthy to kind of spend their money? Because you know the argument that's out there, though, that when it comes to consumer spending, it's not the ultra wealthy that really spend all their money. Is it really from a lack of things to spend it on? I mean, I think you could look at things like cryptocurrencies and, and maybe meme trading and some of this stuff as people have money to burn and they're willing to gamble on sort of crazy things just mm-hmm. because there's so much cash flowing around or collectibles like baseball cards and what have you. And, and so I think when it comes to experiential stuff, a lot of what's out there was out there 10 or 15 years ago, and there's nothing that, that's quite new and novel. Well, and you take us back to the, I think it was the early to mid-1990s, right, when we kind of saw a similar thing happened in terms of more expensive experiences being offered up. Tell us about that. Right. So sort of between 1990 and 1995, call it, you had sort of the modern Las Vegas popped up with casinos like the Mirage and MGM Grand. You had uh, sports stadiums that really sort of upscaled and went luxury with luxury suites and personal seat licenses. Even at movie theaters, you had the invention of the megaplex and these stadium seatings and reclining chairs and what have you. And we haven't had a whole lot of that over the past decade or so. And so people have gotten wealthier. There's an appetite for something new and novel. And so you create a price point and experience that people want. So what does this mean then, kind of bigger, broader? You know, you're an investor, watch the markets. I think about our audience who are hearing this. And so what does this mean? Do you think potentially we'll see more uh, costlier experiences being created out there for because, because the wealthy are ready to spend some money if, if, the, you know, if there's options out there? Like, how do you see it playing out? What's the significance, of, especially when I think about the Bloomberg audience? Yeah, I think if you're a corporation and you see the Star Wars hotel be a big head at you know, 5000 bucks for a couple nights, you're thinking, what can I offer that's a $5,000 experience that people are willing to pay? And so whether that's Universal Studios, maybe it's more Disney parks, maybe it's cruise ships, they can sort of have even more luxurious events. I think there's going to be a real land grab to sort of create your own $5,000 experience and help people to pay for it. What does it mean in terms of economic momentum, too? Because I always think about economic cycles often have you know, several legs, right. right? And several things that kind of either keep it going or ultimately make it stop or slow down. Could this potentially provide another uh, ec- a leg to the economic momentum that we're, we're certainly seeing at this point? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you have maybe new casinos in Las Vegas get built that are several billion dollars of construction and jobs, working class jobs, sort of also people working at these resorts. And then, you know, you see how the wealthy spending their money, they're creating jobs for the working class to serve them. It also helps companies deal with the rising costs they're dealing with right now sort of a lot of ways that you could sort of power a new cycle that's not as dependent on maybe tech and what we've seen over the past decade. I did think that was really interesting in your column when you talked about, you know, presumably Disney will be able to pay more than $15 an hour to staff at its Star Wars venue if it needs to. So when things cost so much, that gives a company that's offering it potentially more room to either pay its workers or, or spend on investments. Right. One, one part of the pricing power story is just being able to offer new products and services at higher price points mm-hmm. that people are willing to spend more on. It doesn't necessarily mean just charging more for your existing stuff. All right. So are you going to take this uh, Galactic Star Cruiser trip? 
I'm going to see what the reviews are like. That's, that's pretty steep for us, but we'll see. All right. Yeah, and we thought uh, going up into space with one of the billionaires was expensive, um, and it is, but this is also uh, a pretty high price point. Uh, a really fascinating uh, column, uh, Connor. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Connor Sen, he's Bloomberg Opinion columnist, the founder of Peachtree uh, Creek Investments, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. A reminder that Disney will be reporting their earnings after the close tomorrow, and I'm just bringing up the stock right now in terms of it's just down about one and a half percent so far here in uh, 2021. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We have just about ten and a half minutes left in today's trading session, and we are off. Our best levels just barely on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Same story for the S&P 500 records on both of those we've seen in today's trading session. NASDAQ just down a hair and off its worst levels of the day. So let's get to it with Vinny Catalano. He is Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management with us once again on the phone in New Jersey. Vinny, nice to have you here. Feels like it's a little bit of the dog's day, dog days of summer. How do you see the trade right now? Uh, I see the trade as uh, continuing what it's been, you know, for the better part of the last year. Uh, You know, what we have is we have a lot of money, uh, a lot of easy in and easy out to the markets, uh, the publicly traded markets, that is. And so, you know, this... It, it had been referred to the stock market in situations like this as being a, a casino, uh, being in Never Neverland. I say it's in whatever land. Whatever land. Whatever, whatever land. Whatever number sounds good to you, uh, you know, it's just uh, that's, that's the environment we're in. So Lots wait, of money. So when you, when you say whatever land, does that mean you think there's some irresponsible trading going on and, and uh, overvaluation? That we're seeing uh, in, in various, yeah, I'm going to yeah, say yes. Evaluation, yeah, that's uh, yes. Uh, there is a, a by every measure of mm-hmm. evaluation. Uh, certainly, in times of yore, when the stock market at least made a reference to what uh, the private equity markets and the fixed income markets make a reference to all the time, and that is the present value to future cash flows. And what do we have now? We have rationalizations for any valuation level that sounds good. We have meme stocks that basically are, I don't know what, but it, there's there's no reference to fundamentals that are there. And so uh, this is going to go on until it stops going on. That's That's the environment we're in. But don't you also feel it is a market? I mean, if you like, take a look at something like AMC, which went above 60, we're now back at 31. Maybe that still makes no sense considering it was a low of, what, $5.51 back in February of this year. But nonetheless, it does seem like, you know, putting meme stocks aside, it feels like investors are having, some individual investors are having some fun out there. But you feel that way for all sec- sectors of the market, even no. some of those? Est- okay. 
Yeah, not all sectors of the market, and certainly not all sectors of the investable market, meaning into the private market area. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that investors might consider, if they have the ability to do it, is to take a look at the private markets, because the private markets offer better value, they're more rooted in fundamentals, uh, and the opportunity to go public into what is clearly an inflated stock market uh, via SPACs or other methods uh, is there. So if, that, I mean, if you want to find value, that's kind of where the value would be. Now, in the publicly traded space, uh, it's a heck of a lot harder. I think what investors would do that makes the most sense, besides all of the fundamental things that they should do, like take a look at their portfolios, make sure that everything is aligned with their wants and needs, uh, their risk tolerances, etc. So when you take all of those things into consideration, that's good. That's all good basic stuff. I guess the way to look at it is to look at thematic issues, mm-hmm. to see what trends and themes that look like they're going to be there for a longer period of time so that this way, if you're invested in an area and that area doesn't do, uh, uh, it, if it hits a speed bump along the way, then, you know, you're in something that you want to be in. But going into issues and areas because everybody else is doing it, well... Yeah, that can work until it stops working. So we, at that point, then you're, then you're stuck with something that you really don't want to own. So when you say private markets, are you talking about private equity specifically, or what else are you talking about? Well, private equity or anything that can be converted into mm-hmm. publicly traded equities, because their devaluation gap, if you look at the statistics over the last 10, 15 years, and you look at P.E. ratios of comparables of publicly traded versus private, uh, privately held issues, you'll see that the privately held issues remain at a pretty constant level uh, in terms of valuation, P.E. ratios. And so they stayed closer to whatever the interest rate changes might be. Right. Whereas in the publicly traded issues, they were all over the lot, you know, significantly above, significantly below. And that's mainly because of liquidity. You can get in, you can get out, and why not? You know, it's, uh, well, it sounds like fun. In fact, what I would like to do is for you and I to create a, a, an, an offering to Quentin Tarantino to offer him that we will put together a, um, a, a program for him to do a follow-up to his Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We'll call it Once Upon a Time on Wall Street. Well, it feels like- Once Upon a Time on Wall Street, the stock market made a reference for value. Today, it's like, whatever. Do you, feel, you, do you feel like it's more out of whack than it was during the tech bubble or during the run-up uh, in real estate and real estate-related uh, financial instruments? Uh, if it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, then most likely it is a duck. Yeah, there are, there are, there are different of types of ducks, though. There's a lot of similarities in that regard, but so, you know something? What? John Maynard Keynes said it. Hey, markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. You know what's interesting? Well, and do you like SPACs? uh, Do I like SPACs? Yeah. Uh, I like private issues that have the opportunity to go through SPACs. Yeah. Okay. I think that that, that's you know that's good. SPACs look interesting, but you know there's so many of them out there, and you know I'd rather do our movie idea with Tarantino. I I I can tell. I can tell. Well, the reason (laughs) I bring up SPACs is if I look at the um, SPAC index uh, or one of the SPAC indexes, it's about twenty six percent. So what we seem to keep finding is that people make money very early on, but the longer it goes on, that's not the case. So again, for an investor, if you're lucky enough to be in and out. 
great. And if you have access early enough, that's great. But that might not be the case for most investors out there. That, that is correct. If you qualify for private investments, okay, and you've had on your program in the past uh, Lawrence Calcano from iCapital Network, and it's not a plug for them, but just that that's an area to take a look at if you qualify the, to see what iCapital Network has to offer to see if there isn't something there in the private space that might make sense for you. Do you get nervous, though? And I'm bringing up, I'm taking a look at... Uh, some of the work that Peter Atwater is doing over at William & Mary, just sending me a note, but you know, concerned about some of the money sloshing around, though, when it comes to private equity. There's a lot of money chasing a lot sure. of stuff that needs to be put to work. Otherwise, the private equity firms have to give it back. You know, So, I mean, uh, you got to be careful there, too. Absolutely. Uh, you really have to do your homework in the private space, okay? Mainly because once you go in, you're not getting out. You're going to be not getting out anytime soon. That's the polar opposite of what goes on in the stock market. I get in now, I get out later. Whereas with the with the private private market, get out later meaning very very quickly. Whereas in the private market, you get in and then you're there, and right. you have to do the due diligence. You've got to do the research, and that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but that's where the better value happens to be, at least. You know, the way, right. the way it looks compared to the, uh, the, to the public markets. All right. We got to run. Hey, Vinny, good to check in with you. Hope you and your family are well. Vinny Catalano, he's Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management, joining us on the phone in New Jersey. And folks, we just have a few minutes left in today's trading session. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.